listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, a special archival broadcast of the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery. We'll hear from three community members, Professor Robert J. Miller, Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, as well as Julie Kavanaugh-Bill, who is a Nevada-based attorney and has worked tirelessly with the Western Shoshone Defense Project in defending the Western Shoshone Nation's traditional homelands, and author Stephen Newcomb, who is the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blow Today on American Indian Airwaves, The Christian of Doctrine Discovery, an exclusive conference from an event held at the Arizona State Representative Floor within the traditional territories of the Tonawatham Nation, and the event was organized by Tonotierra and the Alliance Without Border Organization. We broadcast this educational, informative, and timely archival program on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery just prior to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. The 20th session is being held from April 19th to April 30th of this year, and this year's theme is Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions, the Role of Indigenous Peoples in Implementing Sustainable Development Goal 16. We broadcast today's program because the Christian of Doctrine Discovery lays the foundation for the dispossession of indigenous people's lands throughout the Western Hemisphere and the continent of Africa. Today we'll hear from Professor Robert J. Miller, who is Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He's from the Eastern Shawnee Nation and is the Interim Chief Justice for the Pasqua Yaqui Nation Court of Appeals and sits as a judge for other indigenous nations. He's also the author of Native America, Discovered and Conquered, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, and Manifest Destiny. Following, we'll hear from Julie Kavanaugh-Bill, who's a Nevada-based attorney and part of the Western Shoshone Defense Project, who's worked tirelessly to protect the treaty lands of the Western Shoshone Nation throughout the state of Nevada. And closing will be Steve Newcomb, who's from the Shawnee Lenape Nation, and he is the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. 
You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and now Professor Robert J. Miller on the impact of the Christian Doctrine of Discovery. And look at the Oregon country. Have you ever pondered what makes those boundaries? Well, the boundaries are the drainage systems of those major rivers. The Mississippi River, the drainage system comprises the territorial boundaries of the Louisiana Territory. In 1804, after concluding the Louisiana Purchase, Thomas Jefferson spent the summer of 1804 home at Monticello trying to figure out how large the drainage system the Mississippi River was. Why do you think he directed Meriwether Lewis to go to the very headwaters of the Missouri River and also directed him to go to the northernmost tributary of the Missouri? Because he was trying to determine the boundaries of the Louisiana Territory. Lieutenant Zebulon Pike that I just mentioned was sent along the Arkansas River and he ends up in Colorado, modern day Colorado, and lo and behold he finds a mountain named Pike's Peak. What irony, I just can't believe that. But he also was sent to the headwaters of the Mississippi. And President Jefferson also sent an expedition along the Red River, Dunbar and Scott. So Jefferson was trying to determine the boundaries and he was using the international law of discovery to do that. Because I got a little bit ahead of myself, so I get excited when I give this talk. But we'll see in a moment, one of the elements of discovery is what explains why you use the drainage systems of rivers. The United States claimed the Oregon country because we found the Columbia River first, then Meriwether Lewis and William Clark crossed the continent and live at the mouth of the Columbia for several months, and Americans allegedly settle it first. Okay, so first discovery. You had to find it first. You had to somehow prove that to the world. Then, Queen Elizabeth I in 1587 developed this other element of the doctrine of discovery. Just finding it wasn't good enough. You had to actually occupy these newly claimed lands within a reasonable length of time. So that's what I call my element of actual occupancy. So you had to build a fort. You had to build a settlement. You had to get some people there and to show the world that you had not only found it first, but you now were occupying it. Next element. What did Europeans acquire? Well, Thomas Jefferson called the doctrine of discovery preemption. The United States' very first Congress, folks, you've probably all heard of the Trade and Intercourse Acts that the Congress enacted to limit tribal rights, Indian rights. They, the first Congress used the word preemption in the very first Trade and Intercourse Act, July 22, 1790. So our founding fathers, those people that helped draft the Constitution and started this country, they understood this legal principle. They knew the claims that the United States were making over native peoples. And they knew it came from this ancient, crazy idea that Europeans could show up and claim the rest of the world. Usually when I give the longer version of this speech, I pick someone from the front row and I ask them, where do you live? I'm coming over today with the Bob Miller flag and the Bob Miller religious symbol, and I'm going to claim her house. What's she going to do? What's the number for 911 here? Do you have a gun? I'm going to be insane, aren't I, if I think I can show up at her house and claim it. That's what Europeans did. That's what this international law of discovery did. So when we're talking about the impact on indigenous peoples, folks, it was the colonization, it was the domination of European civilizations and religions of the rest of the world. 
Oh, excuse me, one more. So, European title, that was this overall claim that the Europeans now own the land. In Johnson v. McIntosh, the Supreme Court says about 10 or 12 times that the United States owns the ultimate title, the sole title, the exclusive title of Indian lands, even though Indian peoples were still living on the lands, using the lands, and had been there for millennia. The United States had the chutzpah, the hubris, whatever word you want to use to show up and claim it. So the Indian title, what was the tribe left with? Well, Johnson v. McIntosh tells us. Tribes lost the full ownership of their lands, but they still had the right to occupy and use their lands. So they could still live there, but they had lost the complete title and the United States still owns it. Folks, you know that's still the law today, right? Tribes own what is called the beneficial title of trust lands. 56 million acres of land in the lower 48 state or states are owned by tribes in trust status. That means the United States is the legal owner of their lands. The tribe is the beneficial owner. As you all well know, any tribe that wants to sell, lease, or develop their land has to ask the Secretary of Interior to approve that decision. Because under the doctrine of discovery and Johnson v. McIntosh, the United States is deemed to be the legal owner. 11 million acres of land is owned by individual Indians in the lower 48 states in trust status due to the allotment era. Those Indian peoples are the beneficial owner of those 11 million acres. The United States is the legal owner because of the doctrine of discovery. So this is not just some old interesting thing that happened in history. We live this today as Indian people. So what, what were tribes left with? Well, we already saw what Johnson v. McIntosh said is that tribes lost their full sovereignty. They lost their independence and self-determination. And so the doctrine of discovery says that tribes have only limited sovereignty, only limited commercial rights. Wow, limited sovereignty. Well, that's of course we know the Supreme Court of the United States says that every year in every case they decide. Contiguity, I finally got to the element about how big of an area did Europeans claim when they stuck their flag and cross in the soil. And we don't need to go back to the map because we already did that, but look at how big of a claim France allegedly had to the entire drainage system of the Mississippi River just because a Frenchman showed up at the mouth of the Mississippi in 1685 and, and did that charade. Look at the claim the United States made to own the entire Oregon country all of modern-day British Columbia, all of my state, Oregon, Washington, and part of Idaho, etc., etc., because an American sailed up the mouth of the Columbia River in 1792. After reading Johnson v. McIntosh about a hundred times, these are the ten justifications, the ten elements for the doctrine of discovery. Terra nullius, Latin words that just mean an empty land. Europeans acted as if lands that Indians were using were empty and they could claim them, claim the lands. This principle was used most vigorously in Australia, where the British government didn't even, pretended not to see the Aboriginal peoples, said they don't use land, they're not here, Australia's empty, we can claim it. Australia rejected this principle, the Australian Supreme Court in the Mabo case in 1992. That's a pretty dramatic statement, and it does show that the doctrine of discovery can be resisted, can be fought, and changes can be made today. So that's why these efforts and, and what's going on at the UN Permanent Forum are important. Conquest. How does the court define conquest? 
because the Illinois and Piankashaw tribes that were involved in the Johnson v. McIntosh decision had not fought a war with the U.S. They had not been conquered in a war. I think the Johnson v. McIntosh defines this word in two ways. One, yes, if a European power or the U.S. fought a war with a tribe and won, then it acquired the rights of warfare under European military law. But I think Johnson v. McIntosh defines the word conquest in a second way, what we might call a term of art. The moment Europeans showed up with their flag and their cross, they acquired all these same rights as if they had won a military battle. So I think that's how Johnson v. McIntosh describes conquest. Later American laws use this same idea. Later American laws folks use all of these ideas against American Indians. My last two elements, doctrine of discovery, civilization and Christianity. There is no question that European powers thought they were superior, thought they were bringing great benefits to native peoples around the world, and, and the papal bulls that Steve will talk to you about, of course, is all about this subject. The quotations I could cite you folks throughout American history of our presidents, our secretaries of state, people in Congress, local citizens, newspapers, they all bragged that Americans were bringing civilization and Christianity to these heathen, pagan American Indian peoples. So these ten principles are what I think make up the doctrine of discovery. And so when I was writing this book in 2004 and 2005, I don't know when I started to think, well, gee, what is Manifest Destiny and did it come directly from these same ideas? And that is, that's exactly the conclusion I came to. And I used these ten elements to analyze American history and the statements that were made by politicians and citizens and newspapers, etc., to understand what Manifest Destiny is and was and how it was justified. So I've totally lost track of my time. I have another hour, right, Shannon? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Sit back, relax. I've got another hour. Let's get to the manifest destiny. What is it? I said earlier that I, I bet every American knows the phrase, but I bet they don't really know what it means. This definition is what historians say, not me. This isn't the Bob Miller definition of manifest destiny. This is what most historians agree on. The United States has some special virtue and in, as human beings and as institutions. You've probably all heard the phrase that we think we're this shining city on a hill. I think that was written by some New England minister in like 1640 so, or 60. So in 1660 we thought we were something special and I think we still think that today, don't we? I, I, has, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but anyway, next point. We have a mission to remake the world in our image. Now, folks, I hope I'm not being taped because I don't want to say this on tape, but... And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You're listening to Professor Robert J. Miller, Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He is speaking on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery. And now, back to the program. This is what we said about our Iraq War number two, didn't we? We were going to bring democracy to the Middle East. I'll, I'll just leave my comments right there. And the third one. And we're doing it under God's direction. Now remember, this is the definition that U.S. historians give to manifest destiny. This isn't mine. So, you know, I looked at that and I thought, well, let's analyze the doctrine of discovery elements 
with this definition of manifest destiny and let's see what we find out. So let me take you back. The word manifest destiny was not used for the first time to anyone's knowledge until July of 1845. A New York editorial writer wrote about Texas and that the United States owned Texas because it was our manifest destiny to own Texas and because God wanted us to own Texas. Wow, that made me think of the doctrine of discovery just a little bit. Six months later, he uses the phrase manifest destiny in regards where I live, the Oregon country, in his editorial. He says, it is our manifest destiny to own the Oregon country. Just one paragraph of his editorial encompasses all ten of these justifications. A newsman, John L. O'Sullivan, in 1845, coins this phrase manifest destiny and says the United States already owns the Oregon country. And he almost walks through these. He says, we discovered it first. Under international law, it's ours. Our people are out there occupying it. We deserve it. We're bringing Christianity and civilization to the wild savages, etc., etc., etc. He uses this. You know, the phrase manifest destiny was repeated within a week on the floor of the House of Representatives. I believe it was on January the 7th, 1846, a congressman stated that phrase. And this idea, manifest destiny, just swept the country. Oh yes, we are God's elite. We deserve to own the whole continent. Now what I want to tell you folks is this is nothing new. This idea that Americans were special, yes, started in 1640. This idea that Americans were going to sweep the continent started with George Washington, started with Thomas Jefferson, all the presidents and secretary of states long before John L. O'Sullivan writes the word manifest destiny. In fact, let me tell you that you know our 13 original colonies, seven of them are called landed colonies because the charter that the kings of England gave them granted them the land in North America clear to the South Sea. Well, that was their title of the Pacific Ocean at that time. Now, they didn't know if the Atlantic to the Pacific was 10 miles or 3,000 miles. But still, the kings of England were granting those kind of ownership to the colonies. And they continued to claim those and only gave them up as late as 1802. So, we claimed the whole United States. You know what General George Washington said in 1783? He was only the general then, and he was asked by the Congress, how should we deal with the native peoples? Should we fight a war with them, or what should we do? General Washington makes a very famous statement, folks, that I think was American federal Indian policy until probably 1970. George Washington coined a phrase, the savage as the wolf. And you can read his letter today, it's online, he writes James Duane, one of the senators, and here's a, his recommendation. We don't have to fight Indian people, he said, because we will get their lands as soon as we want and when we are ready to get them. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he goes, what happens to the animals of the forest as we advance our frontier? He says, they disappear, don't they? Then he says, it is the same with the savage, quote, the savage as the wolf, close quote. So what Washington was saying is that Indian people will disappear in front of us like the snow disappears before the sun. And that idea was repeated throughout American history and literally, I believe, until a, what was the termination era about, folks, in the 1950s? Indians are gone, they're disappearing, they're on their way out. But now, in this self-determination era, now in this era where tribes are exercising their authority and their sovereignty, 
the United States is going, wow, what happened? But that's what George Washington foretold. You know what Thomas Jefferson said, President Jefferson? He said that we will drive the Indians along with the beasts of the forest into the Rocky Mountains. So he had the same idea that this continent was for Americans and indigenous peoples were to be gotten rid of. Gosh, you all know what the removal era of federal Indian policy is. Thomas Jefferson was the architect of it. He was writing about it in private letters in 1803, long before Andrew Jackson was president and long before the Removal Act was enacted in 1830. James K. Polk runs for president as the Democratic representative in 1844. The Democratic Party platform in 1844 said, we are going to grab Texas, we're going to grab the Oregon country because God meant us to have it and it's ours. James K. Polk runs on the campaign slogan, folks, how many of you remember this, 5440 or fight. What the heck was he talking about when he said 5440 or fight? You know you don't run for president with a slogan no one knows, right? So today we forgot it, but everyone alive in 1844 knew what that meant. He wouldn't have used the slogan. 5440 or fight folks, means that, ta that James K. Polk was using the doctrine of discovery, the international law principle of how large the Oregon country was and what claim the United States had to the Oregon country because we found it first, then Lewis and Clark went there, and then John Jacob Astor builds Astoria and occupies it. Do you know where the 54th degree of parallel is today? It's the very tip of Alaska. We were claiming all of British Columbia and all that blue area because it's the drainage system of the Columbia River. So in 1844, when Polk runs for president, the people know what he's talking about. International law, these principles of how Euro-Americans claimed new territories just by showing up with their flag, or as Meriwether Lewis did with his branding iron. Henry Clay, who was Secretary of State of the United States in 1825, he was talking about American expansion. And he said, things aren't going to turn out so well for Indian people. James Clay Polk said, it is, and here's a quote, impossible to civilize Indians. Dot, 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 they were destined to extinction, period, close quote. So that's what the United States Secretary of State thought in 1825, and that's what he said and wrote. The United States. American people have the right to all of this, and native people are going to disappear. Gee, that's what George Washington said in 1783, isn't it? So manifest destiny was not a new idea, folks. It was just a repetition of these elements of the doctrine of discovery, this idea of European and Christian superiority and right to the entire world. And so I'll just end very quickly with this, because this is the Oregon country. How did the Oregon country become part of the United States? An American found it first, allegedly. First discovery. Robert Gray's boat, that was the name of his ship, folks, so he named the Columbia River after his ship to show the United States claim to the area. President Jefferson then sends Lewis and Clark across the continent and says, Let's build your fort and live at the mouth of the Columbia River. Establish an American claim. And then John Jacob Astor, that American fur trader, tells President Jefferson, I'm thinking of building a trading post on the Pacific Ocean. Oh, maybe at the mouth of the Columbia River. So I don't know how many of you know my state of Oregon, but Astoria is still on the Oregon coast at the very mouth of the Columbia River. And Thomas Jefferson was delighted 
that an American company was going to build a permanent occupation there. Ah, remember, that's one of the elements of the doctrine of discovery. So give me 30 seconds. What's the impact of the doctrine of discovery today? Every federal principle that you're aware of comes directly from the doctrine of discovery. What are the three fundamental principles of federal Indian law? Congress has plenary power over tribes and can do anything it wants to them, good or bad. Where does that come from? The doctrine of discovery, the power that Europeans claimed and the limited authority of tribes. Second, the trust responsibility. Well, you've all heard that. Why does the United States assume this trust responsibility over tribes? Well, partially because the United States claims this overarching power over Indians and, and indigenous peoples. And with overarching power comes a trust responsibility. And third, you all know the third fundamental principle, that tribal governments are sovereigns, but they're diminished sovereigns. Where does that come from? The ten elements of the doctrine of discovery. Thank you. And that was Professor Robert J. Miller speaking on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery. Professor Robert J. Miller is professor of law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He's from the Eastern Shawnee Nation and is the interim chief justice for the Pasquayaki Nation Court of Appeals and sits as a judge for other indigenous nations. He is also the author of several books, including Native America, Discovered and Conquered, Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, and Manifest Destiny. You're listening to an exclusive archival program on the impact of the Christian of Doctrine of Discovery. The conference was held within the traditional territories of the Autumn Nation. And now we hear from Julie Cavanaugh-Bill, a Nevada-based attorney and longtime community activist working with the Western Shoshone Defense Project on defending the Western Shoshone Nations and the Treaty of Ruby Valley. My name is Julie Cavanaugh Billis. I'm not Shoshone by blood lineage. I'm, my husband is Western Shoshone, and I've lived in the territory now for a little over a decade. Um, but my familiar background, my mother's family actually came here from Ireland. That's the Cavanaugh side. And my father's family came from Germany. And so I've been very privileged and honored um, to work with indigenous peoples for, for several years now and working especially with Mary and Carrie Dan, um, the late Corbin Harney, who actually I think was the one that gave the call for folks to join us um, in stopping Divine Strike. Um, that was the nuclear test, or, or the it was an above ground um, detonation that would have stirred up all of this radioactive dust that is still down there at the Nevada test site. So it was a very serious situation. and. With the help of, of folks from Tonatierra and, and around the world, actually, um, we stopped that detonation. Uh, but as far as the Western Shoshone struggle by training, I'm an attorney. That's how I got involved. I actually started working um, with James Anaya on the Western Shoshone case and taking it to different international forums. And this is after Mary and Carrie Dan, another Western Shoshone, had attempted to find redress here in the United States and through the U.S. court system. Um, eventually ending up in the U.S. Supreme Court, which um, informed them that uh, once this Indian Claims Commission, which I don't know if Steve Newcomb will talk a little bit about that, um, but a quasi-judicial system was put in place by Congress under Congress's plenary power, um, which Professor Miller mentioned. Once they had issued a payment, 
the U.S. Supreme Court said once that payment was issued, you no longer can come to the U.S. courts and argue title. And uh, the Dans and, and other Shoshone argued back and said, well, we never accepted that payment. And we weren't part of the group that went to the Indian Claims Commission in the first place. And even those people that went to the Indian Claims Commission didn't get full rights to due process. Um, they didn't get the same rights that even non-Indians are given here in the United States. And the Supreme Court said, you know what, the Department of Interior is your trustee. And as your trustee, they can accept that payment on your behalf, which is what they did, even though they're suing you for trespass in the original litigation. And so therefore, you have no access to courts here in the United States. We took this to the international level, um, first through the Indian Law Resource Center, where uh, Professor Anaya was working, and uh, then through the University of Arizona Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. And the international system was appalled. First at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights back in 2002, we received a public 50-page decision from the Inter-American Commission. This is one of the most respected bodies of human rights in the world. And in that de decision, they rejected all of the United States' arguments and said that U.S. was in current violation of due process, rights to property, and right to equality under the law squarely rejecting U.S. federal Indian law and justification stemming from, as Professor Miller rightly pointed out, the doctrine of discovery. The U.S. acted like they, were, they potentially might talk, but basically told us this decision is not binding on us. And the State Department, Department of Justice and Department of Interior Attorneys met with us and said, we will not go any farther than what federal Indian law currently provides, which is nothing when it comes to looking at traditional territories and traditional rights. And just as a backdrop, those of, the, of you that aren't familiar, Western Shoshone territories recognized in a fully ratified treaty, the Treaty of Ruby Valley. And you're listening to a special American Indian Airwaves archival program on the impact of the Christian of Doctrine of Discovery. And now back to longtime attorney and activist Julie Cavanaugh-Bill here on American Indian Airwaves. And that treaty was signed in 1863 and then ratified by Congress. At the time, the U.S. Um, Congress had actually convened, and there's legislative history where they informed the Indian agents going out to negotiate the treaty that they did not want to purchase the land. They were in the middle of the Civil War. They wanted access to California to get gold to fund their civil war. They just wanted to get across what is now the state of Nevada because some of you may know the gold we have in Nevada is microscopic for the most part. So at that time they didn't realize there was the amount of gold and, and precious metals in Nevada that they're now realizing are there currently. Um, and so that treaty was ratified and it recognized boundaries. And those boundaries make up approximately 85 to 90 percent of the state of Nevada. And of that land base, approximately 87% is considered federally managed lands, public lands for the most part, but parts of it where uh, the Yucca Mountain facility is, where the Nevada test site is, those are Department of Energy and um, Department of Defense managed. So for the most part, the federal government is in control currently of Western Shoshone territory. And that has been the challenge at the international level. Um, and so in some ways that's helped because we don't have a lot of conflict with private landowners. Our issues with the federal government, which 
out in uh, rural Nevada, a lot of the ranchers agree with us because they don't like what the BLM is doing either. Um, so in some ways, like I said, that's helped us gain some support. Um, but in other ways, we, we're trying to negotiate with basically this invisible headless entity that seems to shift from D.C. to New York to um, wherever. So negotiations have been uh, very difficult. We then took it when they said the Inter-American Commission wasn't binding on them because they're simply a member of the Organization of American States and they haven't fully ratified any treaty under the Inter-American system. There's, there's a treaty, the Convention on the Rights and Duties of Man. The U.S. has not adopted that. They have simply become a member of the Organization of American States and so the treaty body that are the, 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 the law that we used was the Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man and they informed us that they don't think it's binding. So we took it to the UN, and we took it to a body called the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The US signed and ratified the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, okay, back in the 1980s. And I guess the attorneys in the State Department that read this document didn't think that it had any implications besides those that the US had already put in place with, with the civil rights movement and the different civil right, federal laws that came out of the civil rights movement. What they didn't realize is that indigenous people were going to look at that and say, you know what, we have rights to be free from racial discrimination as well. And I'll tell you what, at least from my experience as an attorney, I haven't seen more, any more racially based, antiquated, and I'm going to use the word, genocide motivated doctrine than the doctrine of discovery. I mean, that that says that because you're non-European and you're non-Christian, that you're less than other human beings. And if you look at some of the case law, I mean, the word savage, childlike, animal-like, beast, these are actually still in current case law in the United States of America and still applied against indigenous peoples. And that has, is what has been coming out. And that's the way we wrote our briefs to the UN. It, we call it CERD for short, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The first review of the United States took place in 19, I'm sorry, 2002 was the first review of the United States. And the US, we were able to submit questions to the committee. And the, the committee members, 13 of the 18 committee members raised questions specifically on Native American and indigenous rights in the United States. The U.S. was not ready for it. They didn't think this was an issue. So their response to the question about what gives the United States the right to claim that they have plenary power over indigenous peoples, that they have the right to unilaterally abrogate indigenous lands and territories without just compensation, just compensation, without free prior and informed consent. What gives you the right to think you can do that? They cited to Johnson versus McIntosh. They cited to this case that Professor Miller just informed you about that's based on this so-called doctrine of discovery. The committee was appalled. Their response, and I was trying to remember the exact quote. I have it in some different things I've kept, but I didn't bring it with me. But it was something to the effect, I, this expert slammed his fist on the table and said, we are appalled that you would cite to this antiquated racist doctrine that has been rejected by the enlightened members of the international community and that the U.S. would continue to, to enforce this on the living victims of this doctrine. 
it was so, I had goosebumps, and we had this whole Shoshone delegation with us. This was over in Geneva, Switzerland. And it just made, it made your hair stand on end because for once, publicly, you see this exposed. And that's one thing that we've been talking about because people say in Tupac, said one of the objectives is to look at, you know, what do we do now? And I think bringing it here locally to state governments, um, it was interesting. I, I think it was um, Senator Jackson mentioned the Indian Commissioner, Representative Hale, one of, one of our two honor, esteemed um, uh, hosts here today. Uh, and that was one of the topics we've been talking about. How about getting state governors to put in place advisory councils of elders? So in Nevada, we have Washoe, Paiute, and Shoshone. We have elders in each of those communities that know things about the land base in the current state of Nevada that could assist in government planning and land management, decision making, not just for the benefit of non-Indians, the benefit of indigenous peoples, but for everyone in the state, and start to get those discussions and dialogues occurring and that level of respect. U.S. federal Indian law and policy, I mean, we, I think we have a longer road to haul there because one of the responses that we've gotten in our case is people saying to us, well, if you guys win, what's going to happen? We're going to have this whole Pandora's box of Indian land claims. I had a minister from New Zealand tell me, well, if you guys are right, and if, like, if, you know, if, if we do what the indigenous people in New Zealand are asking for and give them their ancestral land back, recognize their rights, I always say, Carrie Dan always corrects me, it's not giving back because they've never been taken. And I think Steve's going to, Mr. Newcomb's going to, address that, but it's recognition because they're still there. Those rights are still there. Those rights are inherent. No outside colonial body can take those rights away. They are there. So it's a recognition, not a getting back. So um, I could just hear Carrie like correcting me. Um, this minister from New Zealand says, well, if you're right, then we have to recognize the entire country of New Zealand. And I'm thinking in my mind, good, I'm glad you realized that. And then he's, you know, looking at me terrified and he says what would they want us to do I'll get on boats and leave and he was serious and this is you know a, a diplomat at the United Nations and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking because I'm always trying to think of how do we move this forward instead of you know slamming our faces up against a wall or each other it's we all live here now this is the state of this world that we live in now how do we move forward in a positive way and, and, and try to address the redress from the history, but also move forward so we can address what's coming. Uh, and I was looking at him and I was thinking, well, why don't you start by telling the truth? Why don't you start by admitting what's happened? And he just looked at me like this blank look. And I was talking to Raymond Yao, who is the former chief of the Western Shoshone National Council, the traditional government in Shoshone territory. I was telling him the story and he looks at me and he goes, well, Julie, they've never told the truth. He probably didn't know what you meant. And I thought, wow. So to me, that's one of the things, if we're talking about objectives, is, and, and I, it was also one of our, our hosts that mentioned the Native American Caucus here. And the purpose is to provide a forum to educate.
And that was Nevada-based attorney Julie Kavanaugh-Bill. She is a member of the Western Shoshone Defense Project and has worked tirelessly over the decades to defend the Treaty of Ruby Valley and the traditional and treaty territories of the Western Shoshone Nation. You're listening to an exclusive archival special on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery. In the final segment of today's program, we hear from Stephen Newcomb from the Shawnee Lenape Nations. He is the author of Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, and he's the co-producer of the documentary, The Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Dominion Code, which is based on his book and directed by Sheldon Wolfchild. And now, back to the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery here on American Indian Airwaves. Pay my respects to the ancestors of this land, the autumn people, and uh, to acknowledge their traditional territory, and also to acknowledge the representatives of the state of Arizona, Representative Hale and Senator Jackson, and say I'm very happy to be here. Some of these subjects that I'll be talking about are a little bit challenging because they do go into the organic concepts, the originating concepts that had resulted in so much devastation for our nations and peoples. I'm actually Shawnee and Lenape. Our people, our nations are from back in the eastern seaboard area. And so it's interesting to look at how all these things have affected, these doctrines as they're called, these concepts, ideas, have affected so many nations and peoples throughout the world. I want to mention that <clears throat> I think it's key and critical in terms of looking for solutions to honor and respect each and every one of the indigenous nations throughout this land, this continent, this hemisphere, and to speak in terms of the present-day territories of our nations and peoples. For example, I work with the Sequan Band of the Kumeyaay Nation, the Kumeyaay people, in the Kumeyaay Territory, which is today commonly known as San Diego. But when I travel, people say, where do you live? And I say, I live in the Kumeyaay Territory, now today commonly called San Diego. I make sure that I acknowledge that that is still existing because thousands of years of relationship culturally and spiritually of a particular nation or people with their land and with all the elements of life within those ecosystems with the waters and, and everything, that cannot be just negated or canceled out because some other people show up to a shoreline and plant their flag and their cross in the sand or in the land and then make some proclamation in front of a notary and make it an official document to say that they have created rights of sovereignty in that place when they're from somewhere else. And so I want to make sure that, that I start out by acknowledging that. The other thing I want to mention is that what are these documents we're talking about in terms of the documents issued by the Holy See what is now commonly understood as the Vatican. And what are, why are those documents so, so important? When you look at the 
language of those documents, which I'll quote in a moment, you'll understand some of the reasons why they result in behavior that has been so destructive all throughout the world for indigenous nations and peoples. For example, a papal document issued by Pope Nicholas V to King Alfonso of Portugal in 1452, the Pope instructed or authorized the king to go to the western coast of Africa, and this is the direct quoted language, to invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ, to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to take away all their possessions and property. And the instruction in the document is that they are to convert the land. Of course, they're to engage in religious conversion, but this is specifically to convert the land of the African peoples. And in that context, the word convert means to unlawfully or wrongfully appropriate that which belongs to another. And because that's the understanding of the word convert, in the very next sentence or the very next section of the document, the Pope declares the actions to be just and lawful. Those kinds of doctrines, that was in 1452, but in 1455, 56, 1481, 1514, other Portuguese-oriented papal documents were issued. But then in 1493, you also had the documents issued by Pope Alexander VI regarding the voyage of Cristobal Colon, otherwise known as Columbus. And you're listening to an archival special here on American Indian Airwaves on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery. And now back to author of The Pagans of the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, Stephen Newcomb. And in that, in that document, you find some key phrases. And by the way, these documents are found in a book called European Treaties, bearing on the history of the United States and its dependencies to 1648, published by the Carnegie Institution in 1917. And you can find them in both Latin and English. And any of you uh, very diligent students, I highly recommend that you look at the Latin, go deep into that Latin language, because that's the language of the Roman Empire. And it's a language system that explains so much of what's going wrong in the world today. But those papal documents from 1493, there are several of them. And there's one sentence in particular in Latin, and it states, sub dominio, actuali, temporali, aliquorum, dominorum, Christianorum, constitute non sint. And what that means in English is, not under the domination of any Christian dominator. And so that dominorum Christianorum is a critically important concept because it's the idea of Christian domination, Christian dominator. There's another sentence in that document that says, we trust in him, with a capital H on him, from whom empires and dominations and all good things proceed. And the word for dominations is translated into governments in English. So the singular word for government in that context is dominacion in Latin. So th these are very critical, important points and important concepts because they do explain why there are supposed to be checks and balances on government. 
In other words, the law, the rule of law, is not simply to uh, be there for the people, quote-unquote, but it's actually to hold checks on governmental officials and to hold them in check to, the, to curb their activities and their actions so that the deadly kind of lethal power that they have at their disposals is held in check by certain things such as a Bill of Rights and, and so forth. Now, when you trace these uh, documents back, or all forward, rather, in history, what you'll find is that they, the papal documents, along with royal charters of England and many other kinds of charters, which were grants of rights to land and grants of, of presumed rights of dominion and so forth, you find the organic laws, the source of the organic laws of the United States. And so, for example, before I came here, I thought I should look into how these doctrines of, of discovery and domination relate to the history of Arizona. So I looked in a book called Consti state, uh, Federal and State Constitutions, Colonial Charters, and Other Organic Laws of the United States, published in 1877 by the United States Senate and the U.S. Government Printing Office. And what I found is that the what gave birth to the territory of New Mexico was a, an agreement between the Republic of Texas and the United States. And then that Organic Act of New Mexico, the Tor Territorial Act of New Mexico, gave birth to the Organic Act of Arizona. And that resulted in the territory of Arizona. But I still wasn't finding in those two documents anything that seemed particularly relevant. And so what I did was I looked uh, more closely at the language on Texas. But in order to do that, I'm doing using Google Books. So I go back to the table of contents under Texas. And when I, what I look at there is that it says, right under Texas, it says Spanish claims of dominion in the Americas. And then I go back to the to the uh, book and look under Texas, I'm not finding it. So I have to look more carefully at the table of contents. And then I see it refers me actually to a much earlier part of the book, pages 304 and 305. So I go back to those pages and that refers me to Florida. And interestingly enough, the organic documents, the, the originating documents for Florida given in this book published by the United States Senate, pardon me, are two different documents. One, the royal prerogatives granted to Columbus in 1492, and the second document is the papal bull of 1493 issued by Pope Alexander VI to the monarchs of Spain. And that's the very document in which we find this, the very troubling concepts about domination and so forth. So that means that there's a direct linkage to the organic documents of Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and as a matter of fact, also to California and Utah and Idaho and Colorado, and they all go back, trace back to the Spanish Crown Law and to these other documents. So these are fascinating ways in which all of these ideas give rise to patterns of behavior and claims of territory and dominion on the part of the United States government and various state governments to the detriment of indigenous nations and peoples. In Johnson versus McIntosh, there's a key line that tells you how this all works to carry it through.
And this is from Chief Justice John Marshall and Johnson v. McIntosh. While the different nations of Europe respected the right of the natives as occupants, they asserted the ultimate dominion to be in themselves and claimed and exercised as a consequence of this ultimate dominion a power to convey the soil while yet in the possession of the natives. So if you parse that, you pull it apart and you delve deeply into it, it's the idea that they have, just by showing up, they have somehow inherent within themselves this right of Christian domination or Christian dominion as it's euphemistically called, and that the Indians, the heathen original nations and peoples actually have merely a right of heathen occupancy. And so that terminology is used throughout. Now in 1954, there was a case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court called Tihetan Indians versus United States. And the United States government created a legal brief for that case and I'm going to quote a couple of lines from that because I think it's critical and it links to what uh, Julie Fischel and Professor Miller have presented on the doctrine of discovery. And in, under, the, uh, or under the heading of argument, the United States government wrote this, quote, prior to the great era of discovery, beginning in the latter part of the 15th century, the Christian nations of Europe acquired jurisdiction over newly discovered lands by virtue of grants from the popes who claimed the power to grant to Christian monarchs the right to acquire territory in the possession of heathens and infidels. Now that's direct language from the United States government to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954. And it continues. For example, in 1344, Clement VI had granted to the, the, excuse me, granted the Canary Islands to Louis of Spain, and following the discovery of the New World by Columbus, Alexander VI in 1493 issued bulls granting to Spain all lands under Christian rule. It was necessary for the civilized Christian nations of Europe to develop a new principle which all could acknowledge as the law by which they should regulate as between themselves the right of acquisition of territory in the New World, which they had found to be inhabited by Indians who were heathens and uncivilized according to European standards." Unquote. So they're using the exact framework that we're talking about here today in their method of argumentation and the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the United States position in that case. And when you look at the Tihetan decision, you will not find language specific to Christians in their ruling. They do talk about the idea of the, the idea of Indian title being by permission of the whites to occupy the land. But what the Supreme Court did do in its ruling is cite to Henry Wheaton's element, Elements of International Law, published in 1836. And I'll just read you a very brief section of that. It says, uh, according to the European ideas of that age, the heathen nations of the other quarters of the globe were the lawful spoil and prey of their civilized conquerors. And as between the European powers themselves, the sovereign pontiff was the supreme arbiter of conflicting claims. Thus the bulls 
or excuse me, thus the bull of Pope Alexander VI reserved from the grant to Spain all lands which had been previously occupied by any other Christian nation and the patent granted to Henry VII of England to John Cabot and his sons authorized them to quote, seek out, discover, and find all isles and regions and provinces whatsoever that may belong to heathens and infidels and to subdue, occupy, and possess these territories as his vassals and lieutenants. It thus became a maxim of, maxim of policy and of law that the right of the native Indians was subordinate to that of the first Christian discoverer. And so that is actually what the Supreme Court cited to in its decision to Yatan. When you start to look these uh, concepts up, so for example, conquest, conqueror, and so forth, conquer, and subordinate, all these types of terms, there's actually a structure that's been identified by an amazing international law professor named uh, Antony Angie, and he has published a book called Imperialism, Sovereignty, and the Making of International Law. And in the foreword to that book, written by James Crawford, a very eminent international law professor, he mentions that there is a structure of domination and subordination that Professor Angie has identified in international law. And what, what I've begun to understand is that there's a specific vocabulary of dominance or a vocabulary of domination that has been used repeatedly throughout all these various cases and continue to be used today. And that once we identify that vocabulary, we're then able to decode and understand exactly how that system is operating today. The moment of silence is over. And that was Stephen Newcomb speaking on the impact of the Christian doctrine of discovery here on American Indian Airwaves. And that concludes our show for today. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Robert J. Miller, Julie Cavanaugh, Bill, and Steve Newcomb. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Wade Fernandez, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. They try not to become what they've endured Wearing their souls on the thread The moment of silence is over And for the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests on their graves Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains
against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on the thread The moment of silence is over